the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this Monday edition. Follow us at danproftshow.com, podcast of the program there, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. And on social media, at Dan Prof Show. So uh, yesterday evening, President Trump delivered his much-anticipated speech at CPAC. And uh, he made very clear at the outset that uh, he doesn't want to be the leader of the new party. He uh, aims to continue to be the leader of the party to which he currently affiliates. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news. And uh, not only does he want to be the uh, leader of the party while it's out of power and help the party get back into power, it may, four years down the road, include him, of course, being a good showman, left the uh, prospect of uh, another presidential candidacy open. Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? (laughs) For a third time. But in between now and that decision, he made it clear that he is going to work with Kevin McCarthy in particular to ensure Republicans take back the House in 22. The Democrats don't have grandstanders like Mitt Romney, Little Ben Sass, Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins. And that's why Lisa I'm announcing that I will be actively working to elect strong, tough and smart Republican leaders. So he's not going away. And and among the topics that he covered that I think were of most interest to the crowd, in addition to a review of the achievements of his administration and the failures already of the Biden administration, or at least, you know, failures from a conservative perspective, the radical uh, nature of the Biden policies to this point, uh, he tackled the question of election integrity. We have a very sick and corrupt electoral process that must be fixed immediately. This election was rigged, and the Supreme Court and other courts didn't want to do anything about it. They should be ashamed of themselves for what they've done to our country. They didn't have the guts or the courage to make the right decision. They didn't want to talk about it. And President Trump outlined some of the things that need to be done at the state level, starting with this. We need one election day, not 45, 30. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott McKay. He's the publisher of The Hayride and contributor to American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, before we get to some of the specific topics covered uh, with the election integrity issue at the top of uh, my discussion list, your overall impression of the uh, speech that President Trump delivered? Well, I, it was, I mean, it was 
a classic Donald Trump speech. I thought it was a little bit more contentious toward the, you know, Republican establishment than I expected. Um, I kind of thought that there would be a little bit of a uh, rapprochement that, that the speech sought, but he went the exact opposite way. I mean, he was calling people by name um, and, you know, talked about the primary challenges a little bit to some of these people that uh, voted for impeachment. And, you know, obviously that was going to happen, but I kind of felt like he would downplay that. And I I was wrong on that because uh, it was sort of a full on uh, war uh, that he launched against his critics within the party, um, which is not unjustified, by the way. I mean, he's right. got 90 percent support within the party, and it wouldn't be a, an, an unjustified thing if Trump were to say, OK, I'm going to finish these guys off. Well, um, and, and also, too, I mean, he, you know, he did provide a, a explanation for uh, effectively an explanation for naming the names, which is to say, you know, you can't turn the party back over to these guys, and I'm going to to to, to this profile of Republican, and I'm going to work to uh, elect Republican leaders that uh, want to advance the policies we advanced during my time as president, which is, you know, as you say, right. not an illegitimate position. No, and, and and I think that I mean clearly that was the purpose for the speech. I mean, you know, what made headlines is oh, you know, Trump opened the door to running in 2024 and all this kind of stuff, but you know, that was not. I mean, I think he did that to maybe get some headlines, but the big issue uh, that he was pushing in that speech is, you know, I'm bringing money, I'm bringing energy, and I'm bringing, you know, rhetoric to the fight where we're going to consolidate the Republican Party behind the MAGA slash America First agenda. And that needed to be done because, you know, even some of these – you know, Bill Cassidy goes on CNN uh, the morning before Trump gives the speech yesterday, and he starts talking about how oh, our policies are fine, but we can't idolize one man. And that is so out of touch with the I mean, 90 percent of the party is behind Trump. And it's not because they're behind Trump's tweets. They're behind Trump because Trump took the Republican Party in a direction that was different from that of the Republican establishment and was successful with it. Now, you can make the argument that, you know, Trump alienated some voters that he would have otherwise had and then the election couldn't have been stolen or, you know, lost or however you want to describe it. And we can have that discussion, but in terms of the agenda that Trump is going to push whether he's going to make a return to elective politics or not, There's very little difference among Republicans in favor of that agenda. Well, the thing sort of um, where but I think you're getting at when somebody like Bill Cassidy says, oh, there's not much disagreement that the politics or the policies. It's just a matter of cult of personality politics. That's where we have some disagreement when uh, people hear someone like Bill Cassidy or Liz Cheney say that. They don't believe them on the policy side. They trust Trump on the policy side because he did or pursued what he said he would. And these other Republicans say that, that I'm just, you know, not I'm just above cult of personality politics. But they're just using that as a cover to surrender on issues from border security to, you know, the rest of the the full panoply of conservative issues. 
No, that's exactly right. And, and, and it's the reason why it took someone like Trump to come along and, and shake up that establishment. Um, and, and, you know, these guys are just perpetually out of touch with their own constituents. And, and that never changes for some reason. Um, you know, and I think some of it is just there's sort of a personality type that Republican voters used to ask uh, ask for when it came to, you know, who do you, who are you going to elect? And I, that has changed. Uh, I think because Trump showed Republican voters that there was something different and better that they could have. And it wouldn't just be these, you know, like Ross Perot used to call them the blow dried guys. Right. Um, I, you know, and I mean, it was the John Thunes and Bill Cassidy's and Pat Toomey's and these, you know, kind of stuffed shirt guys that that like to play the Washington Generals versus the Democrats, Harlem Globetrotters, in in, in uh, on Capitol Hill every day. Um, you did, you know, you don't have to have that anymore. Trump showed that you can win by actually having a little spice in your gumbo, right? And uh, I, I don't know that people will go back to a Bill Cassidy or a Liz Cheney or whatever because. They don't agree with those guys. They know that corporate donors are going to be behind all of the policy decisions as they were before Trump came along. Oh. Um, and so, you know, like, oh, they're, they're, now they're going to try to claim Trump's policy wins as their own. And to do that, you have to have a certain amount of credibility with the voting base, which you do not have. So, I, you know, I, that's going to fall flat and – I, you know, I don't know what to advise a Cheney or a Cassidy because I think they've done some, themselves so much damage it's going to be fatal at this point. And I think it's a matter of time before all these guys get beat. You know, Adam Kinzinger was on Twitter yesterday after Trump's speech talking about how low energy and whiny it was. <laughs> and I mean, what happened to him on Twitter after he popped off and said that <laughs> was not – Pleasant. I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> it was, you know, it's like precisely it's like you really should shut up right now and let things kind of cool off because all you're doing is just fanning these flames and, not to and, you not, know, not, and making it so you have no future in politics. Not to mention you're exposing yourself as the one who is making this personal and not policy oriented, despite what you're suggesting, it, 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 you know, is the case. How is saying that, which is which doesn't square with the reality that everybody witnessed? How, but it, but setting that aside, how does how is that substantive? How is that about policy and restoring the principles of the Republican Party and all the other uh, twaddle that you hear from Republicans like Kinzinger these days? Uh, when we come back, I want to I, yeah. I want to get to what uh, President Trump had to say about uh, unrigging the elections, starting with uh, the need for a single election day. We'll have more with Scott McKay, publisher of the Hay Ride, contributor to the American Spectator. Right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Scott McKay. He's the publisher of The Hayride, as well as a contributor to The American Spectator. And before the break, uh, we started to touch upon Trump's remarks about uh, the 2020 election and the reforms that need to happen going forward. Interestingly and importantly, there's a case the Supreme Court is uh, taking up tomorrow, an Arizona case, that deals with some of the issues raised by Trump and many others. 
the uh, mandate to vote in the precinct in which you live, the prohibition against uh, uh, bundling of absentee ballots. Uh, in addition to saying President Trump uh, harvesting, I guess is the term that's used most often. Uh, Trump, in addition to saying we need one election day, not 30 days, not 45 days. He also, in terms of his laundry list for states, uh, absentee balloting needs to have a reason. There should be universal signature check. There should be eliminated mass mail-in. There should be voter ID. Um, all those seem particularly sensible. And in addition to whatever the court decides in that Arizona case, this is really ultimately going to be a test of the courage, I guess, uh, if you want to use that word, of Republicans at the state level in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Arizona and Georgia and the like. Right, Scott? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I've said really since the election um, and I, 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 you know, wrote a couple of things, both at my site and also at the American Spectator talking about this is look in 2021. The Republican Party's chief priority, um, you know, over everything else, is at the state level, and number one is to pass the most ag- aggressive election reform uh, packages imaginable. Um, and Trump talked about pretty much all of that stuff. I mean, I would add things like biometric voter ID and, um, you know, and all of these blockchain technology to, to do vote counting and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, but and then the other piece is obviously redistricting, which. I noticed that the census is going a lot slower than it was supposed to be, which is going to delay redistricting. And I don't know if the, the, the plan here is to try to delay it so that it can't encompass the 2022 elections, because just based on migration patterns, Republicans are going to pick up anywhere from six to 10 seats in the House just based on redistricting. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why Kevin McCarthy states gaining. Yeah. Red states gaining popularity or population, blue states losing them, um, yeah, which is why Kevin McCarthy is willing to literally bet his house. He said his personal house, not the house on the Republicans taking back the house in 2022. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you're going to retake the house. The question is, you know, like, what will the Democrats do in order to try to hold on to it? And I think that there are no limits to that. Um, so those two things are like a very, very big deal that need to be pushed this year. Trump's not really talking about the redistricting part yet. Um, my guess is, is that, you know, when the census gets finished, you'll begin to hear some of that from him and his pack and, and, and his allies. You know, but he is talking about the election reform part. And, you know, because that's coming up. I mean, you know, there are legislative sessions getting started across the country. And it's this is the number one thing that Republican legislatures are going to have to address because, you know, talk to a typical Republican voter. And there is this sense out there that, well, you know, they've corrupted the elections process and will never have another fair election in America. And it's all over which is not something that you can have if you're the Republican Party. You can't have your own voters thinking that democracy is dead. And so clearly the way that you have to address that is you've got to go out and pass laws. So, I, you know, I think this is going to be a very, very big push. I don't know what all of these changes are going to look like. I'm sure they'll probably vary from state to state, but you're going to see an all-out war conducted against this mail-in balloting. I, I, you know, that's something that you really just can't call yourself a Republican legislator without doing something about it. 
Uh, on another topic of lessons learned and the implications for 20, 2022 and beyond and how Republicans are going to message as well as battle in the policy arena over this is the COVID response. And uh, Christy uh, Nome uh, made it uh, very clear what her view is, the uh, rising star in the party, the governor of South Dakota. And she, she made a couple of statements during her speech at CPAC that I think were particularly salient in terms of you know, presenting the understanding as well as the choice. Now, let me be clear. COVID didn't crush the economy. Government crushed the economy. She also, uh, per South Dakota being the only state that never closed a business, never closed a church, never closed a school, uh, had this to say about essentially first principles, her philosophy with respect to the decisions that were made to, to respond to COVID in South Dakota. Now, in South Dakota, I provided all of the information that we had to our people, and then I trusted them to make the best decisions for themselves, for their families, and in turn, their communities. We never focused on the case numbers. Instead, we kept our eye on hospital capacity. Now, Dr. Fauci, he told me that on my worst day, I'd have 10,000 patients in the hospital. On our worst day, we had a little over 600. Now, I don't, I don't know if you agree with me, but Dr. Fauci is wrong a lot. Mm, and uh, another rising star in the Republican Party, Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who was the host since it was Orlando, speaking at CPAC, had this to say, sort of consistent with where Christy Nome was going. And what's true in Florida is true for conservatives across the nation. We cannot, we will not go back to the days of the failed Republican establishment of yesteryear. And Scott, these are two sort of bold governors, rising stars in the party that are suggesting that sort of the mealy mouthed appeasement of the super state in D.C. is not where the Republican Party is going to be. It has there's no philosophy consistent with uh, uh, that sort of appeasement and uh, and and as well as uh, paying deference to the expert autocrats like Tony Fauci. Well, I mean, I think that. What you just played was Generation X taking over the Republican Party. I mean, yeah. I, you know, Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome are at this point the, the, the probably the best exemplars of what a Generation X led GOP is going to look like. It, it, it doesn't uh, doesn't respect the old line GOP establishment. It's not seeking bipartisanship with a left who absolutely hates it um, and, you know, and, and is willing to say what needs to be said and is not interested in, you know, preserving things that don't work. Um, I, Trump, I, I think, to some extent, has elements of a Gen X politician. Um, and I think that that maybe is, is part of his charm. You know, he's going to be 78 in 2024. Uh, which, you know, I, I'm thinking is probably a little old uh, to carry it. Now, Trump conducts himself as a much younger man than his age um, and has an energy that, you know, for somebody his age, you don't often see. Um, but, I, you know, DeSantis Nome 2024, I, I think that's a dream ticket. If you take Trump off the board, I, I would say if you presented that ticket to two thirds of the Republican Party right now, they would take it and not look back. 
I would definitely be in that two-thirds, I'll tell you that. Scott McKay, publisher at The Hayride and uh, contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Last week, when the House was debating the Equality Act, so-called Equality Act, which is uh, just the uh, Orwellian term for uh, inculcating trans-identitarian ideology into federal discrimination law. There was an ex- interesting exchange between um, Representative Gregory Stubbe from Florida and uh, Mr. Sardonicus, that would be uh, Jerry Nadler. Uh, listen to how that went. Uh, Representative Stubbe arguing against the Equality Act and uh, Nadler's uh, quick rejoinder. And this bill speaks directly against what is laid out in Scripture. Our government, through this bill, is going to redefine what a woman is and what a man is. It can be anyone who identifies in that gender. Mr. Stubbe, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. There's no question that God's will has nothing to do with this Congress. Uh, I concede the point, Representative Nadler. It also has nothing to do with the education of children, like pre-adolescent children, at some of the most elite schools in America, like the schools that Megyn Kelly sent her kids to. Megyn Kelly was on with Bill Maher explaining why she pulled her pre-adolescent son out of his $56,000 a year school in Manhattan. Now, he's six. Like, can he learn how to spell Cleveland before we, you know, activate him? He lives in New York City. We got buses. We got subways. We got crime. He's got things to worry about other than social activism. And if he's going to be activated, Doug and I should do it. Not not a kindergarten teacher. Didn't run by us. Mm Mm-hmm. She said, she, you know, they loved the kids' school, even though they knew there were political differences. But when she found out that her son in third grade, another son, was uh, involved in a three-week experimental trans education program, she's like, um, no, not without our advice and counsel. So I guess the question is, is being a protector of women's sports, is that enough? That's where Trump focused in response to the Equality Act and everything that's going on with trans-identitarian politics in his speech at CPAC last night. We must protect the integrity of women's sports. So important. After. Yeah. Remember, uh, President Trump was uh, indifferent to openly supportive of men in the women's bathroom. And it's a classic case that we've talked about for, I don't know, a decade, more. You think marriage redefinition has no consequences. You don't understand that it's down the road to the redefinition of sex. You don't understand the implications for that. Oh, it's bathrooms. What's the big deal? Oh, sports. Now it's a big deal. So the utilitarian argument we're going to make is about preserving women's sports. But is the utilitarian argument enough to preserve women's sports and also reality biological reality? And the answer, in my view, is no, it isn't. You have to address the premise of the policies that are being advanced by the identitarians. And there are just very few conservatives who either understand it or both understand it and are willing to address it. Uh, Perhaps Rand Paul, per his exchange with uh, Dr. Rachel Levine last week, is one of the few to address it fundamentally and comprehensively and thoughtfully. 
bring people along since they're so bad at connecting dots, including many self-styled conservatives. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Ryan T. Anderson. He is uh, the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. You used to be able to order that at Amazon, uh, not anymore. Ryan T. Anderson, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Happy to be with you. Um, before we get to uh, your uh, recent experience with Amazon, uh, just a, another story to my point. Because the last time we had you on, um, this was a, a while back now, I asked if you thought, and I think it was on the occasion of the publication of your book, I think, I think do you think we're winning this? Do you think we're going to win this? And you were very optimistic, and I was very pessimistic, and I think I was right. So I want you to tell me why I was wrong. This story from the BBC, just to add more evidence to my case, government agrees to call pregnant women mothers. You know, when that is a decision that is uh, at bar, that is in controversy, it, to me, that's the definition of we're losing. Sure, but the question is, are we going to win? And the answer to that question is yes, because we're on the side of reality. We're on the side of truth. And you can only deny reality and deny truth for so long. There are consequences of denying just you know basic, obvious facts of human nature. You can only rail against human nature for so long. And so the important question, to my mind, is how long will it take before truth prevails? And how many human beings will be harmed in the process? You know, Trump talked about female athletics. Other people want to talk about kind of the down-the-road consequences. I, I want to focus on what about the consequences to children right now who are being told a lie about their bodies and their identities. Right? Children who are being placed on puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormones, children who are having surgeries performed in their bodies as teenagers. This is going against the truth of the human person. It's going against human nature. It's not going to have um, good outcomes, uh, which is why I'm confident that, look, in the long run, we're going to prevail. The, the, the difficult question is how long will it take? Right. When we come back with Ryan T. Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Institute, I want to pick up on the left's push of this insidious ideology that was being described. More with uh, Ryan Anderson right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Institute, Ryan T. Anderson, about the left pushing the insidious trans ideology and the way they're pushing it because it's effective. And so it will, they will continue to lie to people's faces. They have no problem with this. And as you know, the curriculum here is embedded with Black Lives Matter. So now you, you know, the forces have been joined among the cultural Marxists to play the race game as well as to play the sex identity game. And that's going to be very hard to unpack because even if people disagree on something like uh, – uh, minors being given puberty blockers and, and surgery without parental consent and so forth. You know, this is all you're 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 at the same time. You have the cultural Marxists in charge of all of the civic institutions and cultural institutions inculcating kids with this ideology. And so the one off exchange between Rand Paul and Dr. Rachel Levin doesn't win the day. The who's in control of the schools and those young minds wins the day. And look, that's why it's important that it not be a one-off exchange, right? This is why it's important that you're covering this on your show, that, you know, I'm trying to do my part with, you know, books that I've written, with yeah. lectures that I give, with other media appearances. I mean, you're right. The left controls the most important organ 
of culture, right? They control the schools, they control the universities, they control Hollywood. Uh, and what that means is that people like you and me and our listeners need to exercise influence in the areas where we can, right? And we have to recognize it. Like, it's not a level playing field. The left has kind of certain commanding heights uh, that they control, but that isn't an excuse for us to just say, oh, well, we're going to lose, so let's give up. Right? And no. That's the charge for us to, to fight back all the harder. No, I agree. But I think, you know, I think there's some uh, scales that need to fall from some eyes with respect to w what the state of play is and what you can expect if you uh, pursue certain avenues. For example, another story, this out of the State University of New York, where uh, a young man who's in the education program there going on to be a teacher was suspended for posting on social media that a man is a man and a woman is a woman suspended from the programs. So, I mean, I, I don't think, it, even though we talk about this and, you know, your audience and our audience here, I think there's a real almost willful blindness, even among some conservatives, to understand exactly how challenging the landscape has become to be a sentinel for the truth. I think for some people that might be true. I guess, I guess in my case, it's such a foreign experience for me because I see the challenge so clearly. And, you know, I just, I have to live with it every day. But I imagine that what you're saying is true. For some people would rather stick their head in the ground and ignore uh, what's going on around them. And I just think it's going to be our jobs uh, to make sure that they can't ignore it. Well, I mean, I guess it, it, you're probably not surprised by it, particularly after the treatment that Abigail Shire got uh, for her book on the same topic, uh, from a bit of a different angle, but but same topic. So, you know, you, you got in under the wire and now they got to claw back in and purge you along with her. I mean, my, my thought here is that the timing is awfully suspicious, um, that when President Trump was in office, when the Republicans controlled the Senate, when Bill Barr was the attorney general, um, they were reluctant to do something like this. And now with a change of power, both at the White House and at the attorney general's office and um, uh, in the Senate, and last week was the House vote of the Equality Act, right? So... Uh, the timing of this just makes everything a little suspicious, um, and we'll we'll have to see what, what you know how it plays out. Uh, elucidate for our listeners the implications of the Equality Act from your your perspective. This is more than just about sort of ideology or discrimination law. It has real world implications for churches and schools and private institutions. Yes, yeah, so look, the Equality Act it's billed as um, you know we're going to protect people from unjust discrimination, but that's not actually what it does. It's not a shield uh, protecting vulnerable minorities from unjust discrimination. It's a sword uh, persecuting people who believe the truth about human nature. Right? So if you believe that we are created male and female and that male and female are created for each other, under the Equality Act, you will now be a civil rights offender. Right? You will be violating civil rights law. If you try to live that out at your business, at your school, at your charity, at your hospital, at your doctor's office. Uh, this will have huge implications for how we practice medicine. This will have implications um, for how we teach children. This will have implications for bathrooms and locker rooms and sports teams. Um, and more or less anyone who's trying to do any of those things based on reality will now be running afoul of federal civil rights law. And do you see this uh, potentially metastasizing into a speech and thought crimes, uh, like, for example, the kid at uh, the State University of New York. If, if you put this in writing, that's hate speech. If you say this out loud uh, or think this, uh, even in private, that's uh, 
that's also that's hate thinking and hate speaking is another form of it. And, and you know, w- what we've seen from the left recently is a willingness to uh, reconsider the First Amendment and protections for things like so-called hate speech as they define it. I think we're going to see all these issues uh, litigated in court. Should the Equality Act become law? I mean, and one thing to point out is that it still has a pretty big hurdle to clear in the Senate because, at least for right now, we still have the legislative filibuster. Uh, and so this would require 60 votes in the Senate to become law. Um, if the Democrats get rid of the legislative filibuster um, and if they can keep all 50 of their senators voting in favor of it, then I think Vice President Harris probably cast the deciding vote in its favor. If that were to happen, then I do think you are going to see litigation on all these areas. Um, they will say that if you refuse to use you know, the appropriate pronouns, if you refuse to speak falsely, uh, that you're now creating a hostile work environment or you're engaged in hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think all this is really going to do is just create um, a lot of work uh, for lawyers. Ryan T. Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And uh, where, where can people get your book now that they can't get it on Amazon? Well, you can buy it direct from the publisher, which is probably going to be the quickest way for, for, for listeners to get the book. It's EncounterBooks.com. Barnes & Noble uh, is still selling it, but they're sold out. Right? And so, so Amazon sells so many books that when they cancel a book, they just send all their customers to Barnes & Noble. They, you know, they created so much uh, PR buzz about this. But I would say that the real impact here is not my personal book sales. It's the chilling effect this will have on the market. What future author or publisher is going to be willing to write and publish a book that tells the truth on these issues if they're afraid that Amazon will refuse to sell it and that the rest of the world will never know? That's the big concern here is that it's going to have a censoring effect, not just on my book, but on the future books that never even get written. Good point. Ryan T. Anderson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to be on. It's hard to rely on my good intentions When my head's full of things that I can't mention Seems I usually get these out But I can't understand what I did last night Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com Welcome back to the show, and we're going to talk about uh, Bill Maher's uh, celebrated monologue over the weekend, celebrated in quotation marks, um, and it includes uh, a riff on Hollywood. So I guess on the occasion of the Golden Globes last night, it gives me the opportunity to take up a couple of movies I've wanted to discuss for the better part of the last week and haven't gotten to, both uh, I Care A Lot with Rosamund Pike, who won a Golden Globe. But first, uh, two white leftist women hosting the show carry on about diversity and race. Everybody is understandably upset at the HFPA and their choices. Look, a lot of flashy garbage got nominated, but that happens, okay? That's like their thing. But a number of black actors and black-led projects were overlooked. And look, we all know that award shows are stupid. Yeah. Point is, even with stupid things, inclusivity is important, and there are no black members of the Hollywood Foreign Press. The uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association isn't woke enough for uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And they, they just realized the uh, racial composition of the Hollywood Foreign Press, too. Did, was, was there a purge of black or Latino or Asian, other minorities from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association recently? I doubt it. 
but the hand wringing a la the hand wringing over the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is a little much for me. I do want to at least touch on I care a lot because that actually has good ratings and that's gotten very good reviews. And it's reviewed as some sort of indictment of capitalism. Rosamund Pike from Gone Girl. She plays this really fraudster who uh, was documented in real life. The plot of this movie is a real-life problem documented in a, a great documentary called The Guardians about how senior citizens are scammed by these guardians and this guardian cottage industry out of their home. They're declared unfit to live on their own in hearings in which they are not represented. And then the court-appointed guardian comes and just takes over their life, their possessions, and so on and so forth. This could have been interesting to explore dramatically what was memorialized by the guardians in a documentary form but instead it's this whole indictment of quote-unquote late-stage capitalism so what this really is is a purposeful i'll give them the credit that they're not rank ignoramuses a purposeful bastardization of capitalism as fraud it would be the same thing as saying bernie madoff was a capitalist or the enron accounting department are capitalists no they're not they're fraudsters and that's the character rosamund pike plays in this film even though you're supposed to sort of alternatively be disgusted by her, but, but inextricably pulled to her as well, rooting for her in some respects during the film. Uh, and by the way, Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones plays this Russian mobster. He's very good. Um, nonetheless, the film overall doesn't deserve the rave reviews it's getting. It's largely getting rave because the plot's a little silly. But uh, the... The, the reviews are largely predicated on this seeming indictment of late-stage capitalism, which is just a completely fallacious characterization. And so I at least wanted to get that out. And hey, stay tuned to the show tomorrow, and we'll pick up uh, Kate Hudson and, and music and whether Kate Hudson should be removed from acting in Hollywood based on choices and performances, not politics, going forward. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. So just a, a comment on uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, before we get to our next guest, and that is... The uh, concerns about its efficacy per the clinical trial rates of the Johnson & Johnson single jab versus Moderna and Pfizer. I note CNN's coverage here, citing one Dr. Paul Gopford, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Quote, that's probably the most important part of the va this vaccine or any of the COVID vaccines is the protection against hospitalizations and severe disease and dying. It's outcomes. And so the Johnson and Johnson adverse outcomes specifically. And so the Johnson Johnson vaccine as as effective functionally as the other vaccines. And there shouldn't be debate about uh, which you receive necessarily. But e even more to the point for your covid enthusiast friends, for those who continue to conflate cases with outcomes, cases as distinguished from adverse outcomes, hospitalization, severe disease, death. This is a reminder from public health professionals, as so commented on in CNN news reporting, that you're wrong. You've been wrong since 
the outset and understandably because to some extent you are misled information coming from all directions the idea that we were going to get to zero covid but zero tolerance covid enthusiasts are frauds frauds and this needs to be relentlessly repeated and advanced so number one people don't misunderstand the utility of the vaccine and number two we stop making terrible public policy chasing uh, the unicorn of zero tolerance eradication of the virus for more on uh, this in part just the, the topic of covid and specifically with respect to holding china accountable for what has occurred pleased to be joined again by dave seminara Dave is a former diplomat, author of the forthcoming books, Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons and ten acts, as well as Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. Dave, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me back on the show, Dan. Uh, some other, another important statement that was made, and you cite in your piece uh, that I read over at RealClearPolitics.com, uh, Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, At this critical moment, protecting the WHO's credibility is a paramount priority, more so than, for example, getting accurate information out of China, more so than determining the origin of the virus. The primary uh, responsibility or the primary focus of his State Department, the Biden administration's State Department, is protecting the credibility of the World Health Organization. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? It is. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, really, I think paramount, especially using the word paramount, I mean, I think the really important thing is to make sure that this never happens again, doesn't it? I mean, this is what I wrote in the article, is that uh, this should be a never again moment where we should be doing everything in our power to make sure that we never have another pandemic like this again. And part of that is getting China to hand over that early case data for the early COVID cases of the raw data on that so we can study that. And we had just had this WHO team that was in China for two weeks. It wasn't long enough, apparently, because they did not hand that information over. And China continues to peddle, um, I think, what the left likes to call alternative facts and conspiracy theories about the origins of the virus, trying to absolve themselves of responsibility. And just issuing statements is not going to be enough. Issuing statements like this is not going to be enough to force China's hand, is it? So we need to protect the credibility, such as it is, such as that's possible, of the World Health Organization, which has behaved uh, as was laid bare over the last year as a puppet to the Chinese government. We know the ties of the WHO director to uh, the Chinese government as well, including in his, from his home country, uh, Ethiopia. And in addition to that, uh, the concern should be xenophobia. This is what Vice President Harris has focused on is concerns about hate crimes against Asian Americans because President Trump uses the term, uses the phrase China virus, apparently. Yeah. You know what? This is a, you know, it comes into a fundamental difference between conservatives and liberals here of how we respond to legitimate uh, problems and, and crimes. I mean, there has been an increase of hate crimes against Asian Americans, but the way to respond to that is to punish people severely who do things wrong, people who break the law to be punished harshly. That is the way to stop people from having those things happen again. The way to to address that isn't to be soft on China and to absolve China of responsibility for this. Um, And this is, I think, you know, sort of a fundamental difference between liberals and conservatives. I mean, I think that liberals just want to be soft on people who commit crimes but want to, you know, paint sort of with the broad brush, don't they? Well, uh, speaking of uh, soft on people who commit crimes, um, how about 
people who commit genocide like the Chinese communists. There doesn't seem to be much in the, uh, interest in taking up the cause of the Uyghur Muslims by yeah. the Biden administration either, about, about the same as uh, the interest LeBron James has. No, that's a good point. And actually, you know, when I was um, a young man, 20, 21 years ago now, I traveled across, across China on train. I'm very much into travel, as you can tell from the books that I have coming out. But I actually traveled across China by train all the way from Xinjiang province, which is where many of the many of the, many of the Uyghurs live, um, all the way across to Shanghai. I spent about a month traveling across China. So this is a country that I know well, and I like China. But, um, you know, the Uyghur people and their culture have been completely repressed um, out in the western part of China. And this is something that's sort of gone under the radar. And people like LeBron James um, and others aren't too concerned about it. But um, that's a shame. Well, and, and the, the way that um, Joe Biden characterized his conversation with President Xi as well is sort of this this idea that, um, you know, he repeats his lines and I repeat my lines. And then we just go back to the pre-Trump paradigm between the United States and China, uh, even as he simultaneously suggests that China suggests he understands that China is an expansionist power. So, I mean, I, I, you know, trying to distill that you understand China is an expansionist power. You're just content to recite the lines from the way of the uh, way of doing business for uh, several presidential administrations prior to Trump. So, I mean, you don't see Chinese expansion as a threat or, you know, what, what exactly is the play there or the understanding or the uh, willingness to uh, tolerate uh, China uh, by the Biden administration? It just seems sort of murky to me. Yeah. And then, I mean, the Biden administration, the Democrats, I hate to say it, too, but I mean, there's been an awful lot of Republicans who have been seduced by the Chinese as well. Yes. I mean, where are the Republicans on this issue? I mean. There's so many issues where, you know, you, you want to say, oh, yes, but the Republicans are on the right side of this issue. But uh, there's a lot of Republicans who are on, just like immigration, there's a lot of Republicans who are on the wrong side of China, too. And, and these are, I call them sort of the free trade at all cost types who have that attitude that, oh, my gosh, you know, we can never upset China. Gosh, we can't offend China because, you know, they're a third largest trading partner. OK, that's important. But look at the economic devastation uh, wrought by this. Uh, by this pandemic, <laughs> not just on the U.S., but on the entire world. I think it was the IMF who estimated $28 trillion. I mean, you know, I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I think they estimated, you know, the global cost of this pandemic to the world of $28 trillion. Why would we not pull out all of the stops, do everything in our power to work together with our allies, to isolate China, to pressure China, um, to insist that this WHO team goes back to China and does not leave until they get all of the case data, until they receive complete cooperation, Chinese officials. That team should have never left the country. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just I find it I find it crazy. And, you know, Lindsey Graham about a year ago or so um, put forward a, a bill in order to try to punish China and to force them to hand over all of the data and such, and it went nowhere. So it wasn't like all of the Republicans were united. This could have gotten done like a year ago. And now well, and it's, uh, the Republicans yeah. are the minority party, so what are they going to get done now? Probably not much. Well, and it seems, too, just sort of from a common sense perspective, that you have this uh, outflow of American business from China during the Trump administration, moving supply uh, supply lines, supply chains out of China to neighboring uh, Southeastern Asian countries like Vietnam or Singapore, uh, in addition to onshoring business back in the United States. You would think that was that was a happy occurrence and you'd want to continue to encourage it to, as you say, isolate or certainly diminish China, understanding what its yeah. ultimate ends are. 
but yeah. it doesn't seem like that's the case. No, it doesn't. And, you know, this whole thing about, oh, no, we can't say anything about China or we can't force China because we're afraid of, you know, xenophobia and such. This is all really silly stuff. I mean, listen, I'm a person who really likes China. I like Chinese culture. I spent more than a month in my own money traveling across this country because I like it. I'm not anti-Chinese. However, that doesn't mean that I like the leadership of the country, and that doesn't mean that I think that we should do everything in our power to stop them and to make them be transparent. I think, you know, there's just a very clear difference. All of this, it's the same thing with immigration. It's like, oh, no, we can't, we can't limit immigration. We can't have, um, you know, we can't remove the wealth uh, test. We can't do this and we can't do that because we don't want to be xenophobic. It's, it's crazy. I mean, this is not how you guide policy. You, you guide policy based upon the national interest, not upon fear of xenophobia. That doesn't make any sense. Dave Seminara, former diplomat, author of the forthcoming books Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons and ten acts, and Mad Travelers, a tale of wonder, lost greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. As he said, he likes to travel. Dave, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Take care. Who takes every kind of people To make what life's about, yeah It takes every Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, the uh, plot thickens and the hole deepens for Nipple Rings Gambino, the governor of New York. And before we even get to the... uh, new accuser that surfaced over the weekend, a 25-year-old uh, former staffer named Charlotte Bennett. Uh, this is great. Over the weekend at CPAC, uh, our friend David Marcus from thefederalist.com answered the question, who interrogates the interrogators? Who presses the press? David Marcus does. And he went right up to Jim Acosta, CNN, and pressed him on his coverage of the Andrew Cuomo story, stories, or frankly, the lack thereof. Say about Cuomo? I'm here to do a job. What do you have to say about Cuomo? Nothing? Nothing, right? You have nothing to say about Andrew Cuomo. The emperor of New York, and you have nothing to say. Okay, then we see it. Then we see it. At least we'll ride on your friends. Then we see it. Yeah, that's good. Good for uh, David Marcus. Uh, and uh, back to uh, nipple rings. And now we know why he sports that, uh, that fashion to try and keep up with the 25-year-olds. That's probably what he thinks is cool. Uh, Bennett said, uh, 63-year-old nipple ring Gambino engaged in a pattern of inappropriate conduct that left her convinced he wanted to sleep with her, including asking about her sex life, asking if she uh, you know, is open to dating older men, and so on and so forth. Uh, this has drawn um, a rebuke from, uh, and this is great, when, you know, as I said before about uh, nipple rings, when you fall into your own piranha tank, which he's done. Tish James, Letitia James, the attorney general for the state of New York, who really owes her political career to Cuomo, is not going to let that get in the way of stepping over his carcass, perhaps to the governor's office there herself. She, uh, as uh, leading the charge for a probe, and uh, is not going to let... uh, anyone other than her office oversee that probe uh, that uh, the combination of uh, uh, a top state appeals judge and her office 
the attorney general's office could assign an independent investigator if they're choosing to probe the accusations made by Bennett as well as by the pre- previous accuser. And remember, Bennett is new. Uh, Bol- Boy- Boylan, uh, the previous accuser, is not new. These accusations were leveled last year. It was just that nobody paid attention. And uh, per David Marcus's interchange with Jim Acosta, uh, a lot of nobodies are trying not to pay attention right now, too. Because why? Because they have to walk back in their hero worship of Andrew Cuomo for the better part of the last year, don't they? Jennifer Rubin over at the Washington Post. Speaking of tweets that don't age well, Jennifer Rubin, March 25th of last year. Ironically, uh, the date of the order to send sick nursing home patients back to nursing homes. Watching Andrew Cuomo is inspiring, uplifting, fascinating. He weaves details and humor and math and common sense all together. He is magnificent. Let's just listen to him. <laughs> the only uh, individual who's more glowing over nipple rings than Jennifer Rubin, of course, is Fredo. Now, with respect to Jennifer Rubin, the uh, coda on her uh, uh, you know, title page of her Twitter account, quote, if right doesn't matter, we are lost. Well, golly gee, um, be nice for some enterprising reporter to follow up with Jennifer Rubin, termed a conservative blogger by the Amazon Post. Hilarious. And uh, see if uh, she could help us understand who the we is these days who who are lost. Uh, the uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo response to all of this to try to do some damage control here is to issue an apology over the weekend for workplace jokes. He's trying to uh, plead to the least included offense in the hopes of trying to tamp this feeding frenzy down a bit. If he offers some mea culpa, but a mea culpa that's to a seemingly the, the, the most innocuous part of any alleged conduct, then maybe he can twist his way out of it. He uh, explained yesterday that uh, jokes he makes were misinterpreted, misinterpreted as unwanted flirtation. Uh, I now understand, I now understand, he said in a statement, my interactions may have been insensitive or too personal. Some of my comments, given my position, made others feel in ways I never intended. I acknowledge some of the things I have, that some of the things I have said have been misinterpreted as unwanted flirtation. To the extent anyone felt that way, I'm truly sorry about that. Right. If you were offended by my conduct, I'm sorry the non-apology apology, in addition to the recasting of what he was doing and saying as innocent, misinterpreted, mischaracterized. You know, he is just a naive Boy Scout who doesn't understand why people take purely innocent gestures and friendly banter among people he considers family, those who work for him and with him. It's just, you know, good-natured ribbing and so forth. Uh-huh. Well, uh, this video surfaced just this morning. Uh, this is really sort of unseemly. It's, it's actually difficult to watch because he's such a creep. I love the I, actually Saturday Night Live came up with a good one. Uh, Andrew Cuomo looks like all three good fellas put together. Yeah. Uh, this is a uh, video from a few years ago at a lunch where he is, asks a female journalist, a News 12 reporter, her name is Beth 
Safalu to eat a whole sausage sandwich in front of him. And if you watch the video, which I'll post, I mean, right, this is just purely innocent. This is not just, this is not, you know, exhibit A in the charge of creepiness against Andrew Cuomo. I don't know if I should eat the whole sausage in front of you, but I'm definitely going to eat it. No excuses. Yeah, he stares intently at her, no excuses. I think we're going to be here a while. Um, there's and, and then Safala responds, now there's a lot of pressure for me to eat the sandwich. And then the reporter takes a selfie with Cuomo and he jokes, there's too much sausage in that selfie. The embarrassed reporter adds, it's not as easy to eat this in front of all these cameras and so on and so forth. It's just, it's just creepy. It's so ham-handed. Um, you know, the double entendre has all the subtlety of a sledgehammer, by the way. And apparently this is par for the course for Randy Andy Cuomo. Huh. The hero of COVID. Where are all those Cuomo sexuals so in love with heartthrob, nipple rings, Gambino these days? Hmm. Uh, it's important that uh, he get taken to task, not just for his creepiness or maybe worse. We'll see what comes out. There's num- accuser number two. But also going back to something else that was dutifully ignored by the D.C. press corps prior to it resurfacing in conjunction with the report by said same attorney general, Tish James, about uh, his lying about nursing home deaths per the order that he gave. Um, There's a full accounting for that, too, that uh, the bloom is completely taken off uh, this guy's rose or the nipple rings. Out of his nipples, as the case may be. Ooh, gross. Now that's creepy, too. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and um, we didn't uh, cover all of this ground with Ryan Anderson earlier in the program, so let's cover it here, and uh, let's lean on uh, a colleague of his at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Mary Rice Hassan, she's an attorney, we've spoken with her before. She writes on the uh, Equality Act, so-called Equality Act, make no mistake, if the Equality Act becomes law, children in every public school in America will be sold on a cult concept of the human person. That who we are is self-defined by feelings, regardless of biological sex. Female students will be forced into silence or required to celebrate. When yesterday's male classmate announces he identifies as a girl and demands to shower in the girls' locker room, compete against her in sports, and claim for himself the hard-won rights of women. The Equality Act is nothing short of a Pandora's box, which, once opened, will unleash damaging consequences impossible to undo. Uh, And, uh, unfortunately... For those who subscribe to that position, myself included, uh, you're running into more and more resistance, not just because of the disposition of the 
cultural elites in charge of all of these civic and cultural institutions in America, including pre-K through post-secondary education, but also the increasing identification. One in six Gen Z Americans identify as LGBT, the highest rate ever recorded. One in six Gen Z Americans, one in 15 overall, 5.6% of all U.S. adults over 18 identify as LGBT, according to a Gallup survey. Why such a exponential increase in a very uh, short period of time? And what are the implications to explore that, to help us explore that? We're pleased to be joined by Paul Nathanson, who is a gender history and religious studies professor. Uh, Paul Nathanson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, well, first, first, your reaction to uh, Mary Rice Hassan's characterization of the Equality Act and the, the implications were it to become the law of the land. I think it's a problematic legislation, I must say, for the reasons that you cited. First of all, it would have a negative impact, I think, on women, girls and women. I'm not a feminist, but I agree with them on that. Secondly, I think that it focuses attention on people as emotional beings, but not thinking beings. So there's an inherently anti-intellectual substratum to this. Now, I think the figures, the 16%, I think is inflated, not necessarily purposely, but I think that it, it hides the fact that more and more people, especially young people, are attracted to the idea that they can be whatever they want to be, regardless of their biological sex. And I think that's just not true. So I, I think there's, there are problems here. Enacting into law an idea that is really not an idea but a feeling. Uh, you, you talk about those numbers being inflated. Um, I, I don't know that that would be a surprise to, to anybody who's followed this. I mean, I know there was a Gallup survey a few years back asking uh you know, a representative sample of Americans to identify the percentage of people they thought were LGBT in America. And the median response was 25%. Obviously, that's exponentially more than than even this inflated serve these inflated survey results. And, and it speaks to the point that what is ubiquitous becomes overrepresented in, in the layman's mind. And so that's what's happened in America. It's become ubiquitous. And so people think it's more prevalent than it actually is. Well, one problem is that there has always been a very small minority of people who are born with genetic anomalies. You know, even the ancient Greeks talked about hermaphrodites, people who are born with the genitalia, both male and female. So there have always been some people who are simply born with ambiguous characteristics. Mm -hmm. There are also... Uh, a small minority of people who have something that is called gender dysphoria, that is an inability, for whatever reason, to identify themselves comfortably with their biological sex. And I'm not saying assigned sex, because sex is not assigned. It is a birth, it's a characteristic of the fetus right from the beginning. Now, the other another phenomenon is is called, oh, I forget what it's called now, but it's, um, it occurs in, not, in, in, not in childhood, which is what gender dysphoria occurs in. It takes place later in the teen years, for some reason more among girls than boys, 
Um, and it happens in in a context of contagion. Let's hold it right there, and I want to come back after the break. I want to come back and, and uh, t- take up that point because it uh, speaks to some research at Brown University uh, from a year or so ago that was essentially quashed by raising this very issue you're raising. More with Paul Nathanson, gender history and religious studies professor, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Paul Nathanson, gender history and religious studies professor and uh, the author of uh, much scholarship in this area. Uh, he, uh, I, w- I wanted to, to pick up on this uh, topic we were discussing just before the break by hearkening uh, back to. This a Brown University study by an assistant professor there named Lisa Littman. This is uh, a couple of years ago. I think I said it was last year, but it actually dates back to 2018. Uh, professor Littman, per her research, uh, suggested that gender dysphoria, or a conflict between one's gender identity and biological sex, occurring at the time of puberty as opposed to early childhood, could be due could be due to peer pressure or online influences. Uh, this. Um, was ultimately removed by Brown University representatives because of quote unquote concern over the study's research methodology, which actually really turned out to be concern over the research's uh, temp- uh, uh, contingent conclusions. And uh, Professor Nathanson, you were talking before the break about this social contagion aspect to identifying as LGBTQ, uh, particularly among younger people, Gen Zers, and um, you know how much of this is people looking for an identity in life, clinging to an identity as an LGBTQ person, because this is a designation that is now celebrated and perhaps even comes with uh, benefits conferred by the state. Well, yes. I don't know that teenagers are very much aware of benefits from the state, but they're certainly aware of not even peer pressure, just it's a thing. It's new. It's exciting. It might solve all sorts of problems that can't be solved any other way, or at least not obviously. So there are many reasons why people might find this attractive. Um, Very often, I can't say always, but very often they turn out to be gay. And being gay is, I know this from my own personal experience, is something that is even less publicly acceptable than being trans, for example. Being trans is something of the moment. It's today. It's liberation and freedom and all these nice words. Being gay is just... And, you know, the argument for being gay and being trans is quite different. Gay people argue that they are gay simply because that's the way they're born. In other words, they're making essentially a biological argument. I don't know that it's ever been demonstrated conclusively, but they're but that is the argument, whereas trans people are using another argument entirely. They're, they're saying we don't care about biological sex. We're interested only in gender, which is a cultural construct, as they say, and therefore can be whatever we want it to be. So I think that, you know, but the fact is that human beings always live, must always live within both nature and culture. So part of us is 
nature, biological givens, we have either two X chromosomes or an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. That's a given of nature. That's not culture. But we develop notions of masculinity and femininity, which, of course, which really are cultural, and they usually are related somehow or other to biological needs of the community, uh, but they vary from one culture to another and from one period to another. So I think that the, the use of the word gender, which is becoming synonymous with sex, is, an, is another problem because they're, the two are quite different. I wanted to um, have you uh, develop a, a topic area that you've written extensively about, a number of books, Spreading Misandry, Legalizing Misandry, Replacing Misandry, Sanctifying Misandry, uh, all of this uh, obviously in the direction of, uh, of a culture that, is, that, that uh, has contempt for men, uh, you know, transcending, transcending race and, and every other demographic except for biological sex. And um, how pronounced do you think this problem of teaching c- contempt for men is? I think it's a major problem. It's one of the, one of the major problems. First of all, let me just say, that misandry does not um, exist alone. It is, it is the, the sexist counterpart of misogyny, and both phenomena are out there expressed differently. Misogyny is monitored very carefully by countless organizations and government offices. Misandry is not, because it's not considered politically correct to even acknowledge its existence, but it, it does exist. And it's you know, the, the manifestation, the expression of it, the evidence for it would, would include uh, the soaring rate of suicide among men, the soaring rate of dropping out of school. A lot of these guys are, are just giving up because they see no way to establish themselves, to establish a healthy identity as men in a society that seemingly has no room for men. I think the best that uh, men around them is that at best they are, if they convert to feminism, then they can be token women or honorary women. But the notion that society needs them specifically as men by virtue of having male bodies, that is very tenuous at this point for, for a number of sociological and economic and political reasons, um, most of which have nothing to do with feminism. Feminism has exacerbated the problem in some ways, but um, in the misandry books, we trace it all the way back to the beginning of the agricultural revolution about 10 to 12,000 years ago. So there's a long series of cultural and technological changes that have influenced our understanding of the male body and its ability to contribute uh, something to society. And so the heart of the theories that I have written about is that in order to have a healthy identity for anybody, whether personal or collective, there has to be at least one way that you can contribute to society that is A, distinctive, and B, necessary, and C, publicly valued. And if one of those three things is unattainable, then you do not, you cannot have a healthy identity. And the result of that, of course, is for in many cases that people either give up or they turn against society. Mm. 
So there's a so this is a very real problem. It's a it's a major problem, and somehow it doesn't get any press. It doesn't it doesn't get any interest from journalists because well for for all sorts of reasons. He is Paul Nathanson, gender history and religious studies professor, author of a number of books, as we were just discussing, Spreading Misandry, Legalizing Misandry, Replacing Misandry, and Sanctifying Misandry. Paul Nathanson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Returning to our conversation about uh, school reopenings and the fight in these lockdown blue states to get uh, your kids back in school to the extent that you should want to even, again, break your kids back into their schools particularly when once you've gotten a real healthy dose of who's in charge of your schools and thus their education, both from an administrative level, the teachers unions, as well as school board members. And we profiled yet another California school district uh, last week. Follow up to that. This is La Mesa Spring Valley and the vice president of the school board there, Miss Belle Fontenot, who uh, excoriated her fellow board members for even contemplating reopening shouldn't even be something that's discussed because to discuss it is to perpetuate something akin to slavery. This is what uh, Belfontno said. We don't, have to, we don't have to give anybody any date. So I don't want to be a part of forcing anybody to do anything they don't want to do. That's what slavery is. That's what slavery is, forcing kids to go back to school per federal law. So I assume she believes that the federal law that uh, compels children to be in school through 12th grade is akin to slavery. Right. Vice president of the school board there, that quality of thought. Well, uh, the uh, comment she made on the Zoom call with her fellow board members became public as per our discussion last week. And some of the parents, the network affiliate out there, followed up on the story. Some of the parents responding to what Miss Bell Fontenot had to say. I believe it was taken too far. I was in shock. Addressing the matter in a statement, the superintendent says, in part, she behaved in a manner the board does not condone, nor did her behavior represent our values and our commitments to our students, community, and to each other. Mm, I don't know if her... The statements didn't represent your values, considering here we are on in March and your school's still not open. So uh, perhaps her the incendiary nature of her rhetoric was a bridge too far for the rest of the school board, but the underlying policy doesn't seem to be. Uh, Miss uh, Belfontno has not responded herself, but uh, of course she's playing the victim, suggesting she's the subject to ugly threats and so forth now after her comments were made public. So uh, she spoke through an attorney who released a statement and a network affiliate that did the follow-up story also interviewed at least one black family that's supportive of the Belfontno position. Trustee Bell firmly believes, based on the evidence, that reopening schools without a plan to ensure that every child is fully protected and fully supported will perpetuate, if not worsen, the disparities that students of color and their families already face. That is her lived experience. It's our lived experience um, because we are always told what we will do, um, what we should do. Yeah, that parent, welcome to the party. As if uh, black families, she or just black families in general, are the only ones told what they will do, what they shall do in this country, particularly with respect to the, the school district that they're not in charge of. It's just remarkable. 
and this is, you know, you want to understand why things are the way they are in these ghastly run states is because you have parents who throw in with the teachers unions and socialist apparatchiks like Miss Belfontno to maleducate, if educate at all, their children. Sad. And uh, you can guarantee those children will fall further and further behind. We've seen the data. We've talked about the data here. It will continue to pile up and not just in the short term for years to come. The regrets that you'll hear in the months and years to come. What were we thinking? This is Dan Pop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show. Uh, going back to uh, President Trump's speech at CPAC yesterday, much anticipated, he has spent a good part of the first one quarter of the speech, which was 90 minutes long, talking about uh, immigration policy. It's interesting that he started the speech there. And some remarks from Senate, now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer from a little bit more than a decade ago are really relevant here because compare what President Trump is saying yesterday to what Chuck Schumer Right. One of the most unrepentant leftist Democrats in Congress for generations was saying about immigration in 2009 with Obama in the White House and Democrat socialist control of both chambers. Listen to what he was saying about how to get comprehensive immigration reform done. Illegal immigration is wrong. And a primary goal of comprehensive immigration reform must be to dramatically curtail future illegal immigration. People who enter the United States without our permission are illegal aliens, and illegal aliens should not be treated the same as people who entered the U.S. legally. To the advocates for strong, fair, effective, comprehensive immigration reform, and I'm certainly one, I say to you, that the American people will never accept immigration reform unless they truly believe that their government is committed to ending future illegal immigration. And any successful comprehensive immigration reform bill must recognize this fact. And that turned out to just be, you know, rhetorical flimflammery from Schumer, as it has been from many establishment Republicans, including some of those Republicans that were named by Trump yesterday and their more recent crime was voting to impeach and or convict, depending if you're in the House and the Senate. But uh, Trump's naming of those names was not without point. It wasn't just to be punitive to those who crossed him effectively. It was to point out that were the party to be given over to them. But if Republicans do not stick together, the rhinos that we're surrounded with will destroy the Republican Party and the American worker and will destroy our country itself. The rhinos, you know, Republican in name only. But the Republican Party is united. The only division is between a handful of Washington, D.C. establishment, political hacks, and everybody else all over the country. I think we have tremendous unity. When you look at the... Yeah, and, you know, the, the reporting on that, of course, is, oh, it was, it's a litmus test on impeachment. Now, actually, it's a litmus test on being a Chamber of Commerce Republican or being a, a pro-middle-income family Republican, I think. 
For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. What about the, the, you know, Trump went through immigration and energy policy, the COVID response. He went through a lot of topics. But, you know, it all comes back to a certain disposition, I think, that binds the agenda together, even though there are perhaps some policy positions he takes that I, I disagree with. There are. But um, but it does bind things together in opposition to some of those rhinos that he was re- referring to. And is the Republican Party going to be a party of the uh, middle income American family that doesn't have political clout? Or is it going to be turned back over to corporatists that are more interested in serving Fortune 500 companies and their chamber of commerce advocates than those same middle in- uh, than, than than those uh, middle income families I referenced? Well, yes, I mean, obviously, Trump's tone and also his uh, targets are, are, are far more moderate, more chamber of commerce types. So sometimes I think they're more idealistic types like Ben Sass, who maybe are getting a raw deal, but that's, you know, yeah, that doesn't fair. matter, I guess. But I would say that that's a good message for Republicans if they want to be competitive in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, Wisconsin. You know, so I think that's something good to take out of Trump's. I mean, if you're, you know, as a political matter, a good thing to take from Trump. And tonally, he's, he's the same as he was. And, you know, I, I, I kind of missed him for a few weeks because he's a lot of fun to listen to. Well, when, you know, I think he's at his best when you put a fence around him. And, and you know, so you've got a speech on the teleprompter and he uses that as sort of his boundaries. And then he riffs in between the topic areas. Right. But but the, but the, 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 it sticks together. And I thought that's why his speech yesterday overall was very solid. Yeah, it was fine. I again, I think if he had stuck to that sort of tone where he intersperses his language, it's a little like a little Ben Sass or whatever. That's kind of funny. And uh, I think people he's likable when he does that. Um, it's when he gets angry and is sort of off script. And he sometimes he doesn't really know the specifics of what, of what he's talking about, etc., where he stumbles most. Right. And of course, he was understand being the showman. He is understandably coy about his future plans other than uh, supporting candidates he likes to help Kevin McCarthy get the House back uh, in 2022. And he also, uh, much to the chagrin of the uh, the delusional D.C. press course, uh, made it clear at the outset, there's not going to be a third party. We have the Republican Party. We just need to have a Republican Party that's essentially committed to the agenda that most Republicans support, as evidenced by their support of his policies during his presidency and, frankly, their continued support of him as a potential candidate. Yeah, I mean, again, if you're worried about Republicans and you want the Republican Party to succeed, I think that in some you're going to have to find candidates who could bring together the populist side and the more you know Reagan consensus side Maybe Ron DeSantis, someone like that, can do it. I don't think this in naming of name. Listen, I, I don't like Susan Collins, but that's what you're going to get in Maine. And uh, at some point, you're going to have to live with some moderates on the edges of your party, and, or people who maybe don't support you all the time. So I don't know that this, you know, these lists are, are a great idea if you're trying to bring the Republicans together. But you know, I mean, if you're trying to rebuild the party in your image. You're going to do that sort of thing sometimes. I just think when you get closer to the election, you're going to have to find candidates who can bring people together, unless he runs, of course, and he believes he can do that. Well, well, surely. But, you know, there's this other thing, too. You know, it's it's fine for the Liz Cheney's of the world to say, you know, we have to police our own party and there has to be certain standards of propriety and conduct and so forth. So so she's saying it's okay to police our party, but it's not okay for Trump or Trump supporters to say we need to police our party. We need to police our party from people and, and, and exact political 
accountability for people who do the bidding of the left, both rhetorically and, ter- and in terms of their voting record. You know, if, if that, that sort of enemies inside the perimeter argument, um, that that's not just the province of Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney. Yeah, well, two things. One, on the Trump end, I think that, you know, if you demand loyalty, but I don't feel like he always gives it to other people easily. But more, but you're right on the Liz Cheney stuff as well. My problem with them is that they, they seem much more comfortable policing their own party than they are being not policing, but but being critical of the other party and how they act and the things they say. Not everyone's going to be perfect in your party. There are some extremes, like if you're a QAnon person that, you know, I understand that you should police that sort of thing. But but she, you know, there's some grandstanding. I mean, it's not everyone called her brave when she um, stood up against Trump. But if she was serious about that, she could have gone and gotten other people to support her and come out in some sort of organized way and made points. But she was grandstanding. So I, I'm perfectly fine with Trump going after her as well. I and, you know, in addition to COVID, as this continues to roll on and the vaccines roll out and we get to herd immunity potentially as soon as April, according to some public health experts, there's still going to be after effects economically in terms of, you know, kids, the mental state of kids and academic performance and so on and so forth. It seems to me that, yes, uh, obviously energy policy and yes, immigration, but the fallout from the government lockdowns and the choices that were made, particularly the disparate choices in in different states, that to me still frames 2022 at this point, don't you think? Yes, I think it's been a disaster, a long-term disaster, simply for many reasons. One, the precedents we've set with governance and what what governors have done, at the slightest sign of an emergency, it's just unconstitutional in my mind. The kids, what we've done to them is just, there are going to be repercussions for that. It's amazingly unscientific and ridiculous. The lockdowns and the economic hurt at some point, you know, the housing situation and other sectors are going to have to, you know, we're going to have to pay for that, I think. Before we let you go, I wanted to uh, get your take since you wrote a book about the Second Amendment. You know, I'm having a hell of a time getting ammo, uh, even to go out and shoot sporting clays. Um, very interesting that uh, the Biden administration has chosen still to take a hostile posture with respect to Second Amendment rights in the face of, uh, you know, some estimates, 10 million new gun owners in 2020. Yeah, at least 8.5 brand new gun owners last year. Um, so many of them, I assume, or some of them are Democrats. And, and so, so their perceptions of that Second Amendment are going to change. Nothing's going to pass. So it, it, he might try to do something with uh, executive orders, which which then probably will be challenged, hopefully go to the Supreme Court. Ammunition, obviously, there's just a big demand for it. But um, that's something to worry about because they've figured out that they can go against ammo. But a gun, of course, without ammo is useless. So um, that's something to watch. But uh, you know, guns are not a good issue for for Democrats. I mean, they ask these broad questions in polls like, do you want to, you know, do you want more safety when it comes to guns? Everyone's like, yes. But when you actually have a bill, the specifics are not very popular. And uh, I just don't think that there's any gun control legislation that's going to pass in the near future. David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks. Thank you. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. 
How do we understand uh, the Biden policy in the Middle East in his first five weeks? Uh, let's begin with the uh, report that was released as to Jamal Khashoggi's execution on Friday, a report that uh, the Obama administration or that uh, the, the Biden administration, the Joe Obama administration, if you will, had said, oh, well, this was suppressed by the Trump administration. It's kind of time to get the truth out, because for some reason, media in the West, particularly in the U.S., has lionized Jamal Khashoggi, even though he was a bin Laden sympathizer, even though he was a Qatari intel source bizarre i wonder if this has to do something about with something uh, as to joe obama policy towards jihadists in his first two terms and now in their collective third term jen psaki was on with dana bash uh, state of the union over the weekend and she was asked about you know the tough talk from candidate joe biden about uh, jamal khashoggi's death and holding senior officials in Saudi Arabia responsible if it was proven that uh, they had ordered his killing, starting it with Mohammed bin Salman, crown prince. But there hasn't been any follow-through. So you released the report, which purports to confirm that MBS ordered Khashoggi's killing, but then you don't do anything about it. Explain. And Saki tried. Well, first, Anna, from the first day of the administration, we have been crystal clear at every level from the president on down. We're going to recalibrate this relationship and turn the page from the last four years. And that means ending our support for the war in Yemen, doing more to address the humanitarian crisis and ensuring that we are uh, holding to account the actions, the human rights abuses of this government by word and by action. The release of this report, which was held back over the last four years, is part of that, making that clear to the public. But we've also taken a number of steps through the Treasury Department, through the State Department, so, to sanction the deputy head of intelligence, to sanction the revolutionary in, uh, forces in, in Saudi Arabia, and to make clear that we will never let this happen again. And, and <laughs> For a reaction to that spin, that effort at spin, really, I wouldn't even call it effective spin, just an effort at spin, we're pleased to be joined again by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, you know, we ought to start with what is America's interest? We call it the Middle East for a reason, because it's in the middle of everything. It is the intersection of uh, energy. It is the intersection of international air travel, finance, population movements, strategic waterways. It's an area that it, if, it, if it is peaceful and quiet and prosperous, the United States benefits. It's like not having your neighbor next door's house on fire. And what are the chief threats to that? One is keeping great power meddling out of the region, China and Russia principally. The other is containing Iran, which is the great destabilizing threat to the region. And the other is promoting peace and prosperity so countries can focus on their development and economic integration and, and aren't facing the rise of Islamic extremism. So when you look at the president's policies, you have to ask, does it advance any of these goals? And the problem is, no. So pulling support against the, the Houthis, which are a surrogate of the Iranian regime, and are a terrorist group, and have harbored al-Qaeda, and routinely conduct human rights abuses and attacks on Saudi territory, that's not about punishing Saudi Arabia. That's about a gimme to the Iranians to get them to let us come back into the Iran deal. So I'm sorry. Where does this advance America's interests? And the answer is, I'm not seeing it yet. 
from this administration. Well, I want to read a passage from a post, recent post from Caroline Glick, formerly of the Jerusalem Post, who um, I think is really one of the great sophisticated foreign policy thinkers in this region. She writes um, about Obama and and characterizing you know, Biden as a third Obama term, essentially, at least with respect to their disposition towards that region. In every conflict that pitted either conservative Sunni leaders, Iranian anti-regime forces, or Israel against jihadists, from Hamas to Hezbollah to the Muslim Brotherhood to the Houthis to Iran, Obama and his people supported the jihadists. For this reason, Obama admired both Turkish dictator Erdogan and the Qatari ruling family. Like him, they supported jihadists. Saudi Crown Prince MBS and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed from the UAE were big problems for Obama and his ilk. They appeared out of nowhere. Young and vigorous, they seek to liberalize their conservative societies. They are deeply opposed to Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood. They are open to peace and cooperation with Israel. They support Israel and its campaigns against Hamas and Hezbollah, and they are certainly authentic Arab Muslims. Then she goes on to characterize Khashoggi, but the bottom line is that she said, uh, she writes, when the UAE declared the Muslim Brotherhood and Obama's key supporters and ideological allies as care terrorist organizations, C-A-I-R. Uh, Obama and his comrades were so angry they could barely put together a coherent sentence. So does she have that sussed out uh, about right in terms of getting the backstory in terms of the disposition of the Biden administration, like the disposition of the Obama administration, and thus this performance art with respect to the execution of Jamal Khashoggi, even though this is not some endorsement of MBS, and it's certainly not an endorsement of executing Jamal Khashoggi, but, you know, the geopolitics of this, is, is does she have it, uh, the landscape about right? Well, I, you know, I think there are two themes there that she teases out, which are, which are well, three, really. One is is a continuation um, of of Obama-era policies that, that so far this administration in this part of the world seems the most determined to essentially ignore the last four years and go back to the old policies. And, and I think she describes the two, well, one of the two themes correctly, which is the, the, the far left wing of the party, which includes very substantial senior Obama advisors, all their sentiments are with the most extremist Islamist uh, forces in the region. Uh, including Hamas and Hezbollah, and sympathy for the for uh, the Houthis, and and it is and and that and and that and that causes them to distance from all of the key allies in the region, which are the bloc against not just expansion of Iranian influence, but the intrusion of of Chinese influence and Russian influence, and that is you know Saudi Arabia. Um, Turkey as as problematic as that relationship is Egypt and and Israel, um, so she's right. The, the 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 far left wing of the party is very comfortable with supporting all the people that would crush freedom and democracy and enable the extremists in the region. That's that's true, but the other the other theme in which Obama and and now the Biden administration is consistent is the answer for for them is to largely disengage from the region. And to essentially, you know, throw it to its own devices. Now, that's the easy path because it pleases the radicals and and the most extreme parts of the party. And it also requires them to do as little as possible. The the Trump policies are an anathema to both those trends. And and I think that's, that's why they largely abandon them. Not just because they hate Donald Trump and he has orange hair and tweets too much. 
the policies were preventing them from doing what they naturally want to do, which actually is to turn the region over to the Muslim Brotherhood. And that would not end well for anybody, least of all us. When we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, I want to uh, revisit something you said about uh, the alliance between uh, the radical elements of the Democrat Socialist Party in this country and jihadists in the Middle East. More with Jim Carafano right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano about uh, everything going on in the Middle East, and I... I want to go back to something you said about um, the the disposition of the the left, the most left elements of the Democrat Socialist Party, which is where the energy is in the party. I want to turn the region over to the Muslim Brotherhood. That won't end well. Um, I think we can figure out how it wouldn't end well to have uh, uh, radicalized terrorists in charge of states in that region. But... I think people have a hard time hearing that and saying, why would they want to do that? What, what, what do they think is going to happen? What, what is the play here? They have a hard time believing that you have a, a, a major party in this country that, that sides with Islamist jihadists over and over again. Well, so you have to go back you know, to ideology, which is, I think, something that, that we have forgotten in this country. Uh, in in the Cold War, you know, we had this notion of, well, there is right and wrong. But when you look at the core of the most radical elements of, of the president's party, it is completely anti-democratic. I mean, what do the Muslim Brotherhood um, and groups like BDS and Antifa, um, you know, all have in common, which is they have a common strain of authoritarian uh, socialism, which is which looks to transform society in very different in different ways. You know, the, many of the mentors of the people who are in the Obama administration and now in the Biden administration were were the most violent radicals of the 1960s that belonged to groups like the Weatherman Underground and uh, and and to the the Black Panther Party. The root of their ideology was Maoist ideology. It was authoritarian radical, violent socialism. Um, if you look at the roots of the Muslim Brotherhood, it, it is, they were very sympathetic to the ideas of, of Hitler and fascists. And so these, these, these extreme authoritarian ideologies, these are deeply rooted in the far left. The far left is as anti-democratic as you possibly can imagine. Uh, and, and, and the language is cloth in the principles of human rights and democracies, as was the language of Stalin and Lenin when they talked about the best for all mankind and this is for the good of everybody. Um, but the reality is is that the common root is, is there, and it's, it, it is about not just, it's about transforming the world and not recognizing boundaries of what's best for America, what's best for Americans. Um, 
and, and it's just a dimension of of competition we've we've kind of forgotten you know when the uh when the house foreign affairs committee was working on a, a staff report on china they wanted it to be bipartisan but when they got to the part about ideology and they wanted to call out the ideology of the chinese state which again has many common roots with with the muslim brotherhood conceptually um the Dems refused to get on board. They, they wouldn't go there. And the reason they wouldn't go there is because there were leaders in that party that think that there's nothing wrong with what China wants to do. Uh, is there enough uh, advance uh, advancement in peace in that region through the Abraham Accords, for example, that uh, those actors who did come together under the Trump administration will provide enough of a bulwark against any expansionist Iran or jihadist organizations, uh, even if the U.S. leads with uh, a genuflection? You know, we, we, we simply don't know. Right? So, I mean, the, on one hand, we have a coalition government here. I mean, this is like if, if this was in Europe, you know, it'd be like all the Greens and everybody all in one party. Um, there are sensible people in this administration um, that that recognize that, that what we did under Obama was a tragic error and to go back there is dumb. Um, how reality intrudes, you know, when, when, you know, I, I'm, when I'm sure Biden didn't want to be bombing things in Syria, but in a sense, the Iranians forced them to, because they were so aggressive. Um, you know, sometimes reality forces your head as it did for Obama. You know, Obama actually was forced to go back into the region and fight the caliphate. He didn't want to do that. Uh, so I don't know, hmm. but, but it gets, you know, yeah. you know, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It just, it gets to the core point, you know, of, of the, what happened in the last election. Nobody voted on Middle East policy. Nobody voted on China. Nobody voted on border immigration security. They voted on all kinds of other things. But the reality is, is when you elect administration and you bring it in, they bring their policies in and you get all of that. And so, you know, we got what we voted for. Elections have consequences, as uh, someone famously said. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, moving from the geopolitical with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano to the domestic political culture in America. Much is being made of this uh, monologue that Bill Maher gave on his HBO program over the weekend, taking up uh, the opposition to the cancel culture, uh, or which I think is a euphemistic way to describe it. It's really the purge. Uh, even a... Uh, Disreputable figure like Bill Maher fancies himself a libertarian, but is clearly a man on the left, man of the left, I should say. Uh, even he can uh, be in the vicinity sometimes. Of course, the problem is what you're about to hear from him is very convenient marketing position for him, isn't it? Because it's nihilists like Bill Maher who've brought us to this place of Caligula in 21st century America. Nonetheless, Bill Maher inveighing against cancel culture and 
if in case you're ready to jump on board, just listen to the subtle, really not so subtle tells as Bill Maher explains his opposition. Liberals need a stand your ground law for cancel culture so that when the woke mob comes after you for some ridiculous offense, you'll stand your ground. Stop apologizing because I can't keep up anymore with who's on the list. The train seals in his audience who would be happy to applaud the opposite position if he supported the cancel culture. Now, lately, Republicans have been trying to appropriate the term cancel culture to describe what happens to them when they get a just comeuppance for actual crimes. And this muddying the water is unfortunate because cancel culture is real, it's insane, and it's growing exponentially, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you. If you think it's just for celebrities, no. In an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. It's like we're all trapped in the hills have eyes and Wi-Fi. <laughs> Take Mr. Emmanuel Cafferty. He is, was, a San Diego gas and electric worker, but he got fired because someone reported him making a white supremacist hand gesture outside the window of his truck. But he's not a white supremacist, he's Latino. And he wasn't making a hand gesture, he was probably just flicking a booger. Is this really who we want to become? A society of phony, clenched pole avatars walking on eggshells, always looking over your shoulder about getting ratted out for something that actually has nothing to do with your character or morals? Think about everything you've ever texted, emailed, searched for, tweeted, blogged, or said in passing, or now even just witnessed. Someone had a Confederate flag in their dorm room in 1990 and you didn't do anything? <laughs> you laughed at a Woody Allen movie? And Marr continued that it persists despite the stated opposition. Curious. And 62% of Americans say they have opinions they're afraid to share. 80% of Americans, young, old, rich, poor, conservative, liberal, white, minority, all hate the current atmosphere of hypersensitivity. Yeah, everybody hates it, and no one stands up to it. Because it's always the safe thing to swallow what you really think and just join the mob. Well, he's right about that. I mean, again, just quickly, the tells. I mean, the, referring to that uh, utility worker who was fired, he was probably flicking a booger, right? This is the disdain that uh, Bill Maher and those inside his bubble have for working men and women, how the low opinion they have, you know, these are otherwise mouth breathing troglodytes who probably voted for Trump, but it doesn't mean they should be fired for uh, non offenses, as he describes. But Bill Maher is not wearing a white hat here, to be clear. But he is raising a point that, by the way, is a pedestrian one. I don't know why he gets credit for coming to uh, a recognition of something people like me have been talking about for 25 years, people like Shelby Steele have been talking about for the better part of f six decades uh, when the civil rights movement became an identitarian movement that spawned more identitarian movements through the decades, starting on college campuses and radiating out into the rest of culture, such as we find ourselves with this censorious culture now where everybody's trying to not everybody, but where you have a certain cadre of people that are trying to jackpot one another to foment silence and thus impose authoritarianism as as culture 
you know, orthodoxy of opinion, compulsory unification of. So he's right about that. But of course, this is a long time in coming and perhaps it's getting too close to him and industries he cares about, people he cares about. As I, well, as I said, it's very convenient for him to take this position at this juncture. He provided a couple of uh, specific examples of late to drive home the point. The Mandalorian's Gina Carano is a person I'd never heard of and resent that I have now. <laughs> She's some conservative wrestling chick who kicks on a show I wouldn't watch if I was in prison. And she made some Nazi analogy. Who doesn't these days? You're like the Nazis is the new I don't like you. <laughs> it's always okay with Trump's the Nazi. That disqualifies her for marching around planet who gives a shit in a helmet? Yeah, he makes the point that it used to be in Hollywood 60 years ago that uh, if you disagreed with me, you don't get to work. That used to be something that left in Hollywood lamented. Now it's, of course, what they enforce because there is no moral foundation from which they're operating. It's just a power foundation. Uh, Mar also picks up on, you know, in, in the predicate conversation here is precisely that, the foundation from which you're operating and the quality of the thinking, the quality of the discourse, right? You immediately go to Godwin's law as soon as you have a disagreement with someone. He's right to say, you're a Nazi means I disagree with you. Uh, Chris Harrison, the host of The Bachelor. But again, the predicate question, what kind of culture in what kind of culture is a show like The Bachelor popular? He's the host of The Bachelor and is stepping away, stepping away <laughs> to educate himself on a more profound and productive level than ever before. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> because all my life, I've looked up to the host of the F*** a Stranger show. Yeah, I, it's a funny line and a salient point. But again, who brought us to this point? Who brought us to this point where the culture is what it is? Uh, the personalities and shows that are popular are what they are. That to me seems the bigger question or the bigger call for reflection. This is Dan Powell. Love stinks. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com Welcome back to the show following up on uh, our conversation before the break about Bill Maher's monologue on the purge as Bill Maher tries to occupy moral high ground on this you know, his opposition to the cancellation of Gina Carano or Chris Harrison at The Bachelor. Our friend uh, Gad Saad, the uh, psychology professor up uh, Strange Brewerland there in Canada, Concordia College, there Concordia University, uh, he took to uh, social media to post about the extent of the purge that's going on and the enforced orthodoxy of opinion. What exactly are those opinions to be enforced? And I wonder if Bill Maher would stand with Professor Saad in uh, his uh, opposition to some of these viewpoints, but more to the point, his opposition to the prohibition against opposing some of these viewpoints. Take a listen to Professor Saad's top 22. One, 
it is now racist for a white person to translate the work of a black person. Two, it is now homophobic for a straight actor to play a gay character. Three, it is now racist for a white therapist to treat a black client. Four, it is now racist to have advanced high school programs. Five, it is now transphobic for biological females to reject having to compete against trans women, i.e. biological males. Six, it is now Islamophobic to criticize any tenets of Islam. Seven, it is now science denialism to question the ongoing COVID lockdowns. Eight, it is now science denialism to question any tenets stemming from climate change alarmists. Nine, it is now epistemological bigotry, yes, I coined that term, as I have many others, to support the scientific method as the means by which you adjudicate scientific hypotheses. Ten, it is now racist to argue that mathematics yields right and wrong answers. Eleven, it is now racist to promote the ethos of individual dignity over collectivist identity politics. 12. It is now racist to criticize a noble person of color, be it a famous athlete or celebrity. 13. It is now transphobic to posit that only women menstruate. 14. It is now racist to publicly proclaim your support for, quote, wrong-think black individuals such as Thomas Sowell, or Larry Elder. 15. It is, now misogynist, it is now misogynist or misogynistic to note that women greatly outnumbered men in universities. And it goes on from there, the enforced uh, orthodoxy of opinion and the opinions that are to be enforced in all quarters. With Bill Maher and the leftists applaud along with Professor Saad. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do stay informed so you can act courageously and we can live freely. And join us again on the Dan Prof Show tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.